everybody, and welcome to the newest episode of Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America, the, podcast about, the greatest podcast about American history. Uh, today we're talking about the American empire and how the U.S. became sort of a world power, entered the world stage. Uh, this is, can be considered sort of the last episode, last podcast on the sort of early Industrial Revolution series that we've been doing, right? We talked about the Industrial Revolution, how it affected different regional areas of the United States, talked about some reactions to the Industrial Revolution, so looking at the populists, the progressives, sort of that radical labor movement. And now we're going to look at sort of how the U.S. expanded throughout the world coming out of that Industrial Revolution. So in you know, earlier podcasts we've been listening to, we talked about how the U.S. has continued to grow in terms of just size, demography, right? Lots, millions of, of people have immigrated to the United States from all across the world, and not just, but not just population growth, also economic growth, right? The, we have these new sort of steel industries going on, oil industries, railroad industries that are making the U.S. sort of a fabulously well wealthy place. And that wealth isn't just used inside the country, but it's used sort of outside the country as well. And the U.S., in the time we're looking at here, sort of that, you know, turn of the century era, the U.S. goes through a massive growth territory and then also in political expansion and international expansion. So we're going to cover a couple things in today's episode one, the creation of the American empire, right? So how that happened, uh, I'll talk about some of the arguments in history about over sort of empire, we'll talk about expansion in the Pacific and Latin America. So, you know, South, Central America, and then we'll also look at some of the responses to that expansion, right? Not everybody approved it. Not everybody really enjoyed all the expansion the U.S. was doing. We also have some major questions here we're going to look at. So one, why did people start calling for the creation of an empire, right? It's not a given that a country will turn into an empire. Certainly not even the standard country does or even the average country, right? It's sort of a very rare thing. And so looking for that, um, also looking at how did the Industrial Revolution encourage the growth of the American empire, right? In what ways did the economic system set up by the Industrial Revolution encourage this sort of empire-focused growth? Three, what did the American empire encompass? So what does that mean when I say, you know, American empire, like what sort of actual territories, physical land masses does that mean? And then finally, we're going to look at sort of how does progressivism encourage imperialism, right? So going back to the last week's podcast episode and sort of tying some of those threads together. Uh, before we get started here with that, as always, we sort of got this little bit at the beginning today. It's not a person, but a poem. Uh, the poem's called The White Man's Burden by Rudyard Kipling. You may be familiar with that name. Uh, he's a British guy, right? So it's interesting that a British guy is sort of writing about uh, America at the time. But this poem, sort of very famous, Roger Kipling also known for writing The Jungle Book, uh, which is based off the uh, the Disney movie is based off of, as well as Gunga Din, The Man Who Would Be King, Kim, all sorts of stuff. Uh, his son actually died in, in World War One. You wrote some very sort of pro-war poems, and after that happened, some very anti-war poems. Uh, but The White Man's Burden was this poem wrote in, written in 1899 at the beginning of the Philippine-American War, which we'll be talking about. And sort of this was encouraging the imperial ambitions of the United States, right? Today, you often hear, you know, the white man's burden as this sort of negative phrase, this 
desultory phrase, right? Saying, you know, oh, making fun of someone. Uh, but in this case, it was actually sort of saying that, no, it's like the, the white man's burden is real, right? And it's the U.S.'s job to sort of bring civilization to the sort of uncivilized people. Uh, you know, take up the white man's burden, send forth the bestie, the bestie breed, right? That's sort of the first line of this poem. And it's all about sort of this idea of white men having to, to bring, uh, the best of civilization to the rest of the world through sort of these imperial actions, right? Through this war. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was very impressed by this poem. He loved this poem. He's a big fan of it. And it sort of captured the attention of a lot of leaders in the United States at the time, especially those who had control over the U.S.'s various adventures abroad, right? Its imperial ambitions. So he really, uh, he had Roger Kipling sort of found his audience very well. And this sort of poem, while we're talking about it, it became the stand-in for this sort of American-European imperialism, right? Sort of this idea that both critics and supporters use to talk about U.S. expansion, this idea of, you know, white Americans going abroad to spread their sort of white civilization and that being a good thing, or, you know, other hand-on critics being like, are you, what the fuck are you talking about? That's incredibly racist. Like, that's just horribly, horribly messed up. And it's, I think it clearly very much this poem, I suggest reading the whole thing, finding it's very easy to find online, shows the, the very racist nature of, of, of the American empire and the imperialism that came along with that. So sort of the first big question here is why an empire? So there's a couple of, of reasons that historians talk about for why the U.S. started expanding this empire. There's sort of five main reasons. We'll talk about all five, but they're sort of ideas of racial superiority, closing of the frontier, economics, religious and moral backing, and then geopolitics, right? So that sort of racial superiority idea, I think, is really bound up in that uh, white idea of the white man's burden, right? That the U.S. should needed to do this because we were the, sort of the, the superior race and had to spread out to the rest of the world to like bring that superiority everywhere else. Not everyone believed that, but that was sort of a major, major, major backing for the American imperial project. Uh, to go along with that and sort of tying into this idea of the end of the empire, and sorry, the end of the frontier, there's a, a couple of historians, uh, some historians who argue that the American imperial project was just a continuation of the same policies that have been used to subjugate the American Indian people, right? The, the native, native peoples who had already been living in the U.S. and had been subjugated, right? If you remember sort of talking about expansion West during the, the Industrial Revolution in the West podcast, and I use the word colonialism a lot in that, and a lot of historians would argue that that sort of the American sort of empire, imperial project abroad is no different than the one that happened uh, in what became the United States, right? It's just sort of a continuation of those same policies. And one of the big important pieces of evidence for this is that at the end of those, you know, quote unquote, Indian wars after wounded knee, right? Uh, and the conquering of the South at the Civil War, the, the same generals who did all that and a sort of other military men rising up their ranks were looking for new places to conquer. And a lot of those same guys led those expeditions in places like the Philippines and places uh, like South and Central America, right? So it's the same people doing this stuff, uh, using this similar tactics and sort of thing. So I think that argument really holds up. You also get uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, that guy we talked about, the, the, the most famous historian, two historians, offered up his Turner thesis, uh, which argued that the American, that America, Americans required a new frontier, right? Basically saying that, you know, America had always been a frontier country. And now that there was no frontiers, because sort of the borders were complete, we need to look outside 
our you know the physical uh, United States to for new frontiers to to keep them to keep the nation going, and these are all sort of like ideological reasons, right? And I think they're very very important, right? They are very influential, useful in understanding why the the imperial project went forward, but they're not the only reasons. Uh, there's also a lot of financial reasons behind this U.S. expansion. Uh, so by the end of the Industrial Revolution, right, this period we've been talking about, 1914, World War One, sort of, the U.S. was producing a lot of goods, right? We had all these new factories. We had all these new farms, even. You know, we talked about how in the populist episode, how farmers now were having to go to international markets because they were producing too much for the United States alone. Uh, and business leaders wanted access to more and more and more international markets, right? There wasn't this idea of free trade around yet. We couldn't trade everywhere in every country. And they wanted more markets to go to. They wanted these markets both to sort of strip those uh, colonies, what would become colonies, for their sort of natural resources, so raw goods, but then also to go and sell back completed good processed goods to those same colonies, right? That's sort of this very mercantilist, very colonial uh, sort of economic relationship. So they wanted, they didn't want to, you know, help develop these markets to to bring good stuff to good people. They wanted to be, just be extractive with them. They, to so, sort of support this idea, right? They push forward what is called a glut thesis, basically just arguing that all these earlier sort of financial panics that were happening, you know, 1893, all this sort of stuff, that those were a result of overproduction. The U.S. was making too much. We had too much stuff, which led to lower prices. To solve this problem, we need to expand abroad, right? To force our stuff into these other markets so we won't run into these problems at home. They, to do this, to, they didn't just push for military action, right? The, these people weren't sort of, sort of saying we have to go in there and sort of forcibly open these markets. They were, they were doing that, but they were also uh, calling some, doing something called dollar diplomacy. It's really just colonialism and sort of a nicer, a nicer term. But that term is basically just business leaders and politicians working hand in hand to sort of economically force their way into international markets rather than to just, uh, you know, sort of military do it with guns. It's basically a nicer, uh, a less violent form of colonialism. In some regards, this sort of economic forces could be very, very traumatizing. People did die from them. I'm actually, there is, if you're interested in sort of reading a fictionalized, a very fictionalized version of this, uh, there is a book I highly recommend that sort of takes this and, and moves it forward. Uh, that book, if you're interested in reading something like that, is called The Traitor Baruch Cormorant by Seth Dickinson. Uh, there's also a, a memory called Empire that sort of talk about that as well. These sort of fantasy and science fiction book that sort of interrogate these same questions. Very, very interesting. I suggest reading them. Uh, so these, this financial diplomacy, right, is this this dollar diplomacy, this sort of economic colonialism, is people, you know, forcibly buying their way into markets, uh, you know, bribing uh, officials, local officials to let them sell their goods there, and then lowering, lowering prices, dramatically undercutting local people. So people start buying their stuff and then taking over the markets that way. Uh, and these financial interests, right, these guys trying to open these new markets were the prime drivers of early American foreign policy, right? They were the ones who were pushing forward this sort of imperial agenda for these economic reasons. You also get uh, religious and sort of moral backing of this colonial expansion, right? This sort of can tie hand in hand with the racism, sort of white man's burden idea. Uh, you get these American Christian missionaries were a big part of 
the expansion of the U.S. Uh, empire. They, you know, believed they were on the civilizing mission, you know, taking taking the white man's burden upon themselves to do all of this. They, you know, they had a moral duty in their in their belief system to bring Christianity and quote unquote civilization to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, they would call people heathens, and they need to bring Christianity to the heathens. That sort of awful language. China was a big place for American missionaries in the early 20th century, late 1900s, and lots of other uh, lots of other places as well, where they, you know, these Christian missionaries would set up uh, sort of churches and missionary missions to sort of try to spread Christianity throughout the world and sort of U.S. Christianity specifically. There's also some sort of geopolitical reasons for this as well uh, going on. Uh, European governments were doing a lot of colonization as well in the 1870s and 1880s, specifically in Africa and Asia. A lot of times you'll hear this called the scramble for Africa in history classes. And a lot of these European countries, especially the European monarch, monarchs and nobles, became incredibly rich through this violent colonialization. Still incredibly racist uh, colonization, right? And just horrible, horrible, horrible for the peoples of Africa and the peoples of uh, of Asia who were colonized during this time. And many American leaders saw this going on and were afraid that the U.S. would fall behind on the world stage, right? They saw how rich people were getting. They saw the natural resources they were extracting, and they wanted in on that as well. So sort of just this horrible, horrible cycle of stuff backed by all these you know, religious, moral, geopolitical, financial reasons. So how did this actually play out, right? Moving beyond that sort of ideological backing, what did this look like? So the sort of these broader imperial ambitions, right, outside of what we know as the United States, first started in the Pacific. I think it's important to remember that, you know, the U.S. was always an imperial project, right, moving on from the 13 colonies and then spreading out west. That wasn't didn't have to be the United States, right? So always expanding, always getting territory. But outside of what we traditionally know as the United States, uh, that expansion overseas began in the Pacific and then moved down towards sort of Central and South America, Latin America. So we'll take both of these in turn, looking at Pacific, uh, the Pacific first. So in Asia, right, it's this economic sort of stuff again. Businessmen wanted permanent access to markets in Japan and into China. These two countries had sort of long closed their borders to most Western merchants, saying you're not really allowed to sell here. Uh, we want our own stuff and our own internal economies. There's a lot more to it to that, uh, but we don't have time to go in through all that in the podcast. So just what you need to know basically is, you know, around the time of the Civil War, a little bit before and then after as well, China and Japan were mostly closed to Western merchants. Uh, the treaty, there's some stuff changed in 1844. There was this treaty that opened some ports in China, but not all ports. And then sort of the U.S. continued trying to force their way into these places. Uh, in 1853, the U.S. Navy, uh, with gunboats, forced Japan to open up trade with the West. So literally, like, not just dollar diplomacy, right, but actual sort of gun bloat, you know, gunboat diplomacy, so threatening them. Um, they, they was, this was led by Commodore Perry, this sort of famous name, forced Japan to open up trade with the West militarily. But that, that's not really a permanent foothold, right? That's not making a colony. That's just sort of uh, trying to do this economic colonialism. And the U.S. wanted sort of more permanent footholds where they actually had bases and people were living. 
And so they started claiming small islands in the Pacific starting in 1856. There's lots of small islands dying in the Pacific. Some of them are just basically rocks. Some of them actually can like sort of sustain human populations. And this sort of continued on. In 1872, they forced the Samoan, the leaders of the Samoan Island, uh, to allow the U.S. to build a military base on Pago Pago, one of these islands in the Samoas. Uh, and then in 1899, a couple of years later, the U.S. annexed just the whole island, right? So not just Pago Pago with their military base. They took control of the whole thing. And annex sounds like they just said, oh, you're part of it, right? And that's not, you know, annexing can just be like, you can just say that, but you have to back it up in some way, right? A lot of times. Like I could say I annexed Chicago to be part of Indianapolis, but no one would believe me unless there was sort of actual some like military force behind that or some other sort of political action, right? So annexing is this whole process. It's not just something that you say. But it wasn't just, you know, these economic reasons for colonialism go beyond just sort of opening up markets. Uh, one of the big forces for expansion in the Pacific was the guano islands. This is sort of a big thing. Uh, bat guano, bat shit, was used uh, and discovered to be sort of an excellent source of fertilizer. So we had, you know, we hadn't really developed artificial fertilizers yet. And bat guano, I believe, is really rich in nitrogen, which is really good for the soil. Most plants take out nitrogen but do not put them back. Beans put them back, but not everyone wants to grow beans. And so in 1856, the U.S. passed a law that any U.S. citizen could claim islands that have bat guano on them as part of the United States. Uh, so it is clear here, we need to be clear, that these islands aren't necessarily populated by humans. They're islands in you know, the very loosest sense of the term. They're usually just rocks jutting out of the water. But they were very, very important economically to the U.S. Some people got very rich off of claiming these islands and selling this bat guano. Like, literally, you could sell bat guano for hundreds of dollars a pound, right? Very, very, very uh, expensive material at the time for fertilizer. It destroyed this sort of rush to get these islands, destroyed bat habitats all along the Pacific, right? Bats can no longer roost at these places. Their their attempts to, to you know, poop there and rest there on their flights were destroyed by this mining. So it was economically, sorry, environmentally horrible. And sort of this rush to get this back on quickly, quickly destroyed any market, right? There, it takes a while for these sort of guano deposits to build up, and it takes the seconds to, to get rid of and to put it all on a boat. So that sort of quickly went away, but it did push a lot of people toward exploring the Pacific and, and sending out people in that direction, pushing forward U.S. imperialism. The other big sort of Another big uh, Asian addition to the United States was Alaska, sort of, you know, our, one of our non-continental states. Uh, in 1867, the U.S. purchased it from Russia. Once again, is that land theirs to purchase, right? There were the native Alaskans living on that land, not necessarily, you know, wanting to be part of the United States. But Russia sold it to the U.S. Uh, it was purchased largely by William Seward, who was the Secretary of State at the time, really pushing for the sale. It became known. People, you know, made fun of him for doing it. This is barren land way up north, not even connected territorially to the United States. And so people call it, started calling it Seward's Folly. Uh, and eventually he bought it because he thought that Russia needed the money sort of as a favor to them, right? They had helped the U.S. in the Civil War, and he, it was sort of a favor to the Russians, helping them get this territory off their hands and then, you know, helping him out a little bit with that money. Uh, he also thought the U.S. needed more land for farming. I don't know what he thought people were going to be farming up in Alaska. 
but he just thought the U.S. needed more territory. And he also sort of, it was uh, one other thing about it. He thought that the United Kingdom should be warned against further expansion into the into North America, right? They had Canada. It's like that now that needed to be it for the United Kingdom. So this is sort of a warning to them, right? To to back off. And Alaska obviously became a, a state later. And the other big Pacific acquisition is Hawaii. Uh, this is sort of the major object of U.S. expansion in the Pacific, right? Their big, big goal. Not Alaska, not these bad Guano Islands or the Samoas. Sort of Hawaii was the, it's the one of the biggest land masses in that area. And the U.S. really wanted it. By the 1880s, U.S. corporations, through this economic colonialism, controlled most of Hawaii's wealth. It wasn't, it was an independent kingdom, queendom. Uh, it wasn't part of the U.S., but it was largely controlled by U.S. economic interests, right? So that economic colonialism coming back in. Uh, but they, these corporations didn't just want to be, you know, an economically charged, they wanted to be political charge of the country. They wanted to be part of the United States to get access to constitutional powers, tax powers, etc. So in 1887, they tra- they started a coup uh, to transfer power from Queen Liliuokalani uh, and place white settlers in control. That uh, coup was successful. Uh, Sanford B. Dole, who's the cousin of pineapple magnate James Dole, you know, Dole products still exist today, was in charge during the sort of coup era, this Republic of Hawaii period. So three years after that coup, they these settlers, these white settlers petitioned the U.S. to try to get the U.S. to annex Hawaii. Queen Liliuokalani was still sort of nominally in charge and, and rejected uh, this scheme, which she still had like enough power after the coup to do that. And three years later, though, however, these white settlers, once again, with the help of the U.S. Navy this time, removed the queen completely from power um, and, you know, once again tried to get the U.S. To, to annex Hawaii. Grover Cleveland at first refused to do it. Sort of he said it's too far away. But sort of the from the in 1898, the Spanish-American War started, and he thought it would be very much in use as a military base and sort of saw economic possibilities from it. And so in 1893, 1898, sorry, Hawaii was uh, annexed to the United States. So there's Hawaii is this big, big story, right, of this sort of economic to political control, colonialism. You have this very well-off country, right, doing great on itself. Uh, you know, white settlers come in, ec- do economic colonialism, start, you know, owning pineapple farms, et cetera, et cetera, and then they take power and annex themselves into the United States. So this horrible story of this um, loss of this of this independent uh, country to colonialism. So after after sort of Asia and after Hawaii, the U.S. also starts uh, expanding into Latin America at the same time. This was a little trickier uh, for them with regards to sort of European countries, right? European countries, especially Spain, had already had a colonial presence there and had had a colonial presence there for a very long time. Right, the first European settlers to uh, the New World, quote unquote, came through you know Latin America, right through the Caribbean uh, and into you know Brazil and Mexico and Spain, all these places. But the U.S. said we're much closer. We want to be sort of the preeminent force here now, where we have a much stronger country, a much closer relationship. It shouldn't be Spain, it shouldn't be the U.K. or whoever who has these biggest relations here. It should be us. And so it's one of the first big crises here. Uh, and the, for one of the first big expansions by the U.S. into Latin America was it's called the Venezuela Crisis 
1895, Venezuela and Great Britain were sort of fighting, quarreling over who would control the gold-rich region of Guyana, uh, called British Guyana, so it's sort of, you know, a hint at who wins that. Uh, And during this conflict, right, the U.S. was making noises about enforcing the Monroe Doctrine uh, through this, through the war. Uh, The Monroe Doctrine was sort of passed, you know, early on, and, but it was just sort of a doctrine by James Monroe. It says that European nations, um, that the U.S. would not tolerate further colonization or puppet monarchs put in place by European nations in South America. That had always just sort of been a thing that the U.S. had said, but hadn't been able to enforce. But now sort of they have the U.S. has the military might to actually perhaps enforce some of this stuff. Uh, When the U.S. started talking about that, Great Britain backed off a little bit, basically. Uh, They negotiated a settlement with the U.S. without involvement from Venezuela, right? Sort of saying, we don't need to listen to Venezuela. We can just ignore them. We'll just, you know, these big two white countries will talk about it, and Venezuela can just be on the side, give or take. Uh, And this sort of emboldened the U.S. to make, to take more drastic steps, to take more action in Latin America, right? They said, if we can actually get the Europeans to listen to us, we can sort of make more noise here, and they'll even have more reason to listen to us. Uh, How that crisis ended was that the U.K maintained control in Guyana for a very long time. The U.S. eventually took over during the Cold War, right? And British Guyana is a country with, uh, it's not, you know, just all colonizers. So this is a sort of colonial relationship. Uh, And during the Cold War, the CIA and the AFL-CIO, actually, so this labor organization, basically got this dictator, Forbes Burnham, elected who would maintain power in Guyana for a very long time, sort of destroying the country after being put in place by the CIA and the AFL-CIO. So the U.S. sort of continued their expansion in Latin America. And one of the big ways they did this was through a huge naval buildup at the time, right? So building up their navy. Uh, This was done to protect their overseas interests. Started this in 1883, right? You can't have this sort of, you know, worldwide empire without a big navy at the time. Planes uh, aren't going to do it, right? Because mostly because they haven't been invented and certainly have not been, uh, you cannot use them for military operations at this moment. So there's sort of two things that push forward uh, interest in building up the Navy. One was the success of the the Union Navy during the Civil War, right? They have, you know, these early ironclad ships and they're able to blockade the South to stop them from getting their cotton out to make money. That was hugely successful. And then there's this guy, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who was very influential in the Navy and sort of pushed forward this big idea that modern, modern you know, military success, modern government success, colonial success required massive fleets, right? So he sort of pushed forward this, this buildup of of the the U.S. Navy. Uh, And so between 1889 and 1893, the U.S. went from being the 15th largest Navy to the 7th, and that would only, you know, continue to rise for a long time. So very, very much huge expansion of the Navy during this time. And to mostly to support the sort of colonial expansion. One of these big, big moments in the American imperialist project is the the Spanish-American War, which sort of people have heard about a lot, but it was majorly influential in the U.S. sort of expanding in Latin America and really what a lot of people would argue turned the U.S. into a major international power, sort of along also at the same time beginning the U.S.'s journey into becoming, you know, the world's police, right? 
the the police force of the world, which some presidents have talked about us being even today. That really started with the Spanish-American War. So the Spanish-American War is sort of a little bit complicated, um, but we'll go through it here. It began as an independence movement by the Cuban people. Uh, right, so it's interesting. You know, the Spanish-American War starts in Cuba, uh, but sort of Jose Marti led a rebellion against the Spanish in 1895. Jose Marti is still considered a hero by a lot of people in the United States. There's a part of Milwaukee Avenue in Logan is named after him, sort of honorarily named after him. But he led a rebellion against the the Spanish control in 1895. Spain cracked down hard on this. Right, they didn't want to give up Cuba. They didn't want to give up their colonies. Uh, this crackdown eventually killed Marti. Uh, turning him into a martyr for a lot of people, not just in Cuba, but all across uh, South America. Uh, this rebellion devastated the, the Cuban economy, which many U.S. Businessmen were, businessmen were very heavily invested in. Right? They had these uh, foreign investments in the Cuban economy, and that destruction really hurt them. Uh, they were also Politicians also became concerned about this because there was a war happening only 90 miles from the U.S. Cuba, famously, 90 miles from the U.S., and they were concerned about that, right, this war being on the border. There are also these two guys, uh, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hertz, newspaper owners. I'm sure you've heard their names. Pulitzer Prize, Randolph Hearst, famously, you know, the Rosebud guy. Uh, they published lots of stories about the Stinted Revolution. They wanted to mostly to sell papers, right? Sure, they, they knew people would be interested in it, but they also very much sensationalized it, uh, told lots of false stories about it. You know, they would tell all these horrible crimes on both sides just to sort of sell papers, right? It's known as yellow journalism, sort of stoking the, the fears of the populace. These stories were heavily anti-Spanish uh, and sort of began to foment anti-Spanish attitudes in a lot of the American public, right? Saying that, you know, Cuba should be free. We can't have the, the Spanish people, you know, cracking down on them. Uh, they wanted the Cuba to be free, but largely so that, you know, American businessmen could go in there and make more money. Um, in 1898, Spain was all but defeated in Cuba. They basically didn't have enough people, didn't have enough money to continue the fight. Uh, and in February 1989, 1898, sorry, in 1898, the U.S. got involved. American spies intercepted a letter from a Spanish ambassador to the U.S. insulting President McKinley. The USS Maine, which was stationed in Havana, blew up, killing 266 men. This was reported as being done by Spanish agents, right? You see on the, the front page of the New York Journal, the headline is destruction of the warship Maine was the work of an enemy. You know, so they're saying these 266 men were killed by Spanish, you know, saboteurs. That was not the case. Uh, it blew up to a fire uh, because of a fire in its old coal bunkers. So they you know someone messed up and a fire started in the coal, uh, you know, bunkers of the ship, right? These cold power ships and it completely uh, blew up and destroyed the whole boat, but it was reported as being done by Spanish agents. And this stoked, you know, fears even more of Spain, hatred of Spain, even, even more. Um, what's important to know is that the Cuban people did not want the U.S. to enter the war, right? This is a war for their own independence. They thought if the U.S. would come in, that they would lose that independence, right? The U.S. would try to annex Cuba, make it a part of the United States. But leaders in the U.S. like Henry Cabot Lodge, Theodore Roosevelt, and even the general public at this time were calling for war. Uh, they they wanted to, the U.S. to go in there, right, to sort of save the Cubans from these evil Spanish people, even if the Cuban people had already basically won the war and didn't want the U.S. in there. 
Spain even offered to give in, recognize Cuban autonomy, uh, but McKinley rejected this offer. Now, why would McKinley be rejecting this offer? He's on a control of Cuba. Good question, right? But it's sort of this Amir, um, the Monroe Doctrine stuff that you know the U.S. has sort of control over this area. He part a lot of McKinley, you know, rejected this reason. He didn't want this country built on racial solidarity. Businessmen also very much worried about their investments, right? They thought they would lose them, get kicked out of the country if this Cuban revolution won. So to the public, McKinley presented uh, this war as sort of a humanitarian one, something to protect U.S. citizens from the danger of having Spain so close to their borders. Uh, Congress, you know, passed. They did to sort of, you know, assuage fears that the U.S. would sort of try to take over Cuba and, and it, to so sort of maintain the fact that it was just a humanitarian war, Congress passed something called the Teller Amendment, which barred the U.S. from annexing Cuba, right? So saying, okay, you know, even if we win this war, we can't add Cuba to our own country. So the U.S. entered uh, this conflict between Cuba and Spain, called it the Spanish-American War. They actually didn't just fight in Cuba, they also fought this in the Philippines. And by the end of the Spanish-American War, the U.S. controlled the Philippines and had annexed part of Cuba, right? So sort of clearly ignoring this humanitarian thing and making it very much an imperial thing. So why fighting in the Philippines? Good question. Spain also had long held Philippines as part of a colony, and much of their fleet was in Manila, uh, a city in the Philippines. And so the U.S. thought that, you know, to prevent Spain from like bringing more people in, they had to fight them in the Philippines as well. So the U.S. Navy, led by Commodore George Dewey, easily defeated the Spanish Navy near Manila, but they did not have enough troops to occupy the islands. At the same time as the U.S. was doing this, there was also sort of a Filipino resistance movement going on, uh, led by this guy, Emilio Aguinaldo, who declared independence from Spain in July 1898. And so when U.S. reinforcements arrived to sort of take over this island, they occupied Manila and barred Aguinaldo from the city, right? So this guy is leading this sort of resistance movement from the people in the Philippines. This Filipino guy is barred from his own, from the own city by by these uh, American troops. As a result of that, the U.S. entered a long guerrilla war with Aguinaldo's, Aguinaldo's forces that lasted from 1899 until 1902, which was long after the end of the Spanish-American War. So the U.S., you know, from this conflict starting in Cuba, the U.S. now gets involved in this longer war starting in the Philippines, right? There's always these extra consequences to imperialism. The U.S. committed horrible, horrible atrocities in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War, uh, burning down entire villages. Even U.S. soldiers were sort of openly openly questioning the tactics they were being told to use. There's something called the water cure, quote-unquote, where Filipino prisoners were being force-fed huge amounts of salt water to try to get them to talk or to be punished. Um, at the end of the fighting, 200,000 Filipinos were dead and 4,300 Americans had died. Uh, at the end of this war, the Philippines became an unorganized, quote-unquote, territory, and Filipinos were U.S. citizens until 1946, for a long time. So a lot of people don't realize that the Philippines were actually sort of the, a U.S. territory, and that Filipinos were U.S. citizens all the way up until 1946, as a result of the Spanish-American War. 
So at the same time, going back to Cuba now, still the Spanish-American War, uh, fighting was also going on in Cuba. The Spain was quickly defeated by the U.S., right? The Cubans had already put Spain on their heels, and the U.S. came in and sort of did mop-up duty. Uh, people like Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, and his Rough Riders, quote unquote, became famous for their charge up San Juan Hill as part of the, the fighting in the Spanish American War. In reality, that didn't actually happen. A squad of black soldiers had already claimed San Juan Hill, and Roosevelt just took the credit for it. So, this charge of San Juan Hill that he's known for, he didn't actually do. These, this, this group of black soldiers had already claimed and did all the actual fighting for this hill. Uh, as a result of the U.S. coming in, Spain granted Cuba its freedom, and then also sold its other colonies in the area, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, to the U.S. for $20 million, right? Remember, that sale of the Philippines didn't mean the U.S. had control of the Philippines. They still had to fight the Filipino resistance movement for a couple, like, three more years. So despite this Teller Amendment, you know, the promises that this was just a humanitarian mission, uh, U.S. forces remain. U.S. forces remained in Cuba for two more years after the end of the war. They installed sort of this puppet regime, a U.S. friendly regime in Cuba. They wrote the U.S. Congress wrote and passed the Platt Amendment in 1901, which overruled the Teller Amendment and made it become a part of the Cuban constitution. And this allowed the U.S. military to intervene on the island whenever they felt their interests were being threatened, right? That's sort of an, an it's a wild thing to add to another country's constitution, right? Saying, hey, you know, you're, here's your constitution, you're an independent country, but whenever we feel like it, we can come in uh, and, you know, military intervene where we want. Obviously, they forced this, they forced this into the Cuban uh, constitution. No, no Cuban revolutionary who had been fighting for that wanted that in there, but the U.S. just sort of put it in. Uh, and the U.S. did use it uh, in 1906, 1912, and 1917. They forced uh, their way into the country when they thought their interests were being threatened. And those interests were always economic, right? Businessmen thought they were getting scammed or thought they would get, you know, lose their, their stuff. And so they brought the military in. So we talked about all this stuff uh, so far, uh, but not everyone was sort of pro this imperial stuff that was going on. Not everyone was a pro-imperialist. There's also this rise of anti-imperialism in the United States. They came from all over the political spectrum. Some people were radical, coming at it from the left. Some were far more conservative, coming at it from the right. Uh, they, the preeminent group for these anti-imperialists was called the Anti-Imperialist League, the AIL. Uh, their, its members included people like Andrew Carnegie, Mark Twain, Samuel Gompers, Jane Addams. All right, so people who would maybe be at each other's throats on a normal day, uh, all came together under this anti-imperialist banner. They all had different reasons for hating imperialism. Some of those reasons were very racist. Some of them were actually sort of humanitarian ones. And in the, in the sort of as a part of their political process, the AAL uh, supported William Jennings Bryan as the uh, anti-imperialist candidate in 1900, but lost very, very badly to William McKinley, right? So these anti-imperialists were on the rise, but didn't have that much actual political power. And U.S. sort of expansion continued along despite that pushback. Both President Teddy Roosevelt and President Woodrow Wilson took bolder and sort of more aggressive approaches to international affairs as time moved on. By 1906, the U.S. had the third largest navy in the world, right? Moving up from seventh to sixth. And these two presidents, they had 
expanded this continued expansion of the U.S. basically had three major goals, which we'll go through here. One was to open trade with China, right? China was still that sort of big country they wanted to open trade with. They wanted to build the Panama Canal to allow for shorter shipping uh, to get the U.S. Uh, Navy quickly from you know the the west to the east. They didn't have to go all the way around the bottom, uh, but it go through. And then also they wanted to police Latin America to protect U.S. interests. So trade with China. Uh, in 1899, the U.S. called for an open door policy, quote unquote, with China. Uh, they wanted to prevent annexation of China by European powers, right? They were afraid a country like the UK would come in like they had with India and annex it and basically control it. But the sort of there's also a nationalist movement going on in China at this time, which began with the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, uh, hoping to remove sort of foreigners, right? To get rid of uh, these foreign mercantilists, get rid of uh, Chinese missionaries. And this nationalist movement was supported by the Chinese government. Uh, they ended up killing a German ambassador, uh, lots of Christian miss- missionaries. The U.S. joined forces with other European nations to suppress this rebellion in sort of brutal fighting, right? So they brought their own troops into this country, and they were able to suppress that rebellion. And as a result of the suppression, they didn't take over the country, but they forced China to adopt their open-door policy, which basically allowed sort of anybody to trade in China. Uh, the Panama Canal, uh, U.S. commercial interests had wanted this basically since the 1840s, right? They wanted a shorter way to get around South America. At the time, Panama belonged to Colombia. Uh, the U.S. sort of tried to negotiate with them to rent the land from Colombia to build this canal, but talks uh, broke down in 1901. As a result of these talks breaking down, Roosevelt encouraged the Panamanians to revolt, the people of Panama to revolt, right? Sort of encouraged this revolution. They successfully... Uh, did. They broke away from Colombia, right? They had their own country, in part because the U.S. Uh, Navy blockaded Colombia, you know, stopping them from getting reinforcements and supplies into the country. As a result of this win, Panama then leased to the U.S. a 90, uh, sorry, not a 90, a 10 mile wide strip of land called the Canal Zone, right? So basically, the U.S. helped them win this war, and as a result, got uh, the Canal Zone. But building the canal didn't happen overnight. It was no easy task. Some people had already tried. The Colombians had already tried in 1869. Excuse me, had tried to do it in 1869, but had failed due to yellow fever deaths. But by 1903, Walter Reed, you know, the famous hospital named after him, uh, had found a way to manage the fever. Uh, and so the canal was able to go forward. It was completed just before the start of World War I in 1914. Thousands of workers died building the canal, right? These were working in awful, awful conditions for little to no pay. And the U.S. maintained control of the canal until 1999. So a very, very long time when the Panama regained control of that canal. And then also sort of this continued U.S. expansion was involved lots of policing in Latin America. This isn't, you know, the U.S. sending in cops, but sort of, you know, trying to prevent revolutions that might be more radical, might get rid of U.S. business interests in the area. Uh, and they did this under the guise of the Monroe Doctrine, which I mentioned, and then something called the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine put forward by Teddy Roosevelt, which basically he said in 1904, 1904-1905, somewhere in there, that in cases of flagrant and chronic wrongdoing by a Latin American country, the U.S. could intervene in that country's internal affairs. Uh, right, and you know, chronic wrong 
wrongdoing, obviously very up for debate by the U.S. Also, once again, ridiculous that the U.S. said something that they could just go into another country and do whatever they wanted. So between 1899 and World War I, the U.S. intervened in the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Mexico, and that's just in Latin America, right? There are many other countries where the U.S. intervened. Uh, these invasions of national sovereignty often resulted in U.S. involvement in the country for decades on end, right? So places like uh, Haiti and Nicaragua, the U.S. very, very much involved for a very long time. They didn't just go in and leave. They went in and then stayed there. Uh, and these interventions caused more instability than they actually solved, right? It just made things worse, but it did make some Americans very rich. Um, so by the start of the 20th century, the U.S. had become a world power, right? And American citizens had really come to terms with this. Uh, coming to terms doesn't mean they agreed with it. There's sort of three major camps of people talking about America as a world power, right? There's isolationists, realists, and idealists. So the isolationists... Um, they became most popular in the immediate aftermath of the Spanish-American War, right? They thought the U.S. would return to its isolationist roots after this war. They believed that these alliances were not beneficial, that these wars were too costly, right? They looked at the Spanish-American War. They're like, this was supposed to be just about helping Cubans, and now we're in the Philippines. And so that became very popular in that way, but they sort of quickly lost power. There's also the realists who sort of hoped that the U.S. would become a great world power. They believe that nations only pursued their self-interest and that this was in the best interest of the U.S., that humanitarian, humanitarian, right, didn't matter. As long as people made money, it was good for the U.S. Sort of this realpolitik real idea, right, that power and military strength are the only things that matter. And then your sort of third group in reacting to this are the idealists, and they sort of believe that the U.S. could act as a moral reformer for the world, right? This is very much a sort of progressive idea coming through. They should be involved to help better the world, right? You know, like Cuba, Spanish-American War, that was good, right? We need to get those Spanish out of there. The most famous of these idealists was probably Woodrow Wilson, and you see sort of like some international recognition of this position. Roosevelt won the Nobel Peace Prize for sort of ending uh, the Russo-Japanese War, 1905, helping end it. But these idealists, I think, would again be sort of outplayed by the realists time and again. So I know it's been a long podcast episode, but hopefully it's been informative here. Just a few quick conclusions. One, U.S. expansion happened relatively quickly, right? This wasn't a centuries-long thing. In fact, it was barely even a couple decades, largely spurred by economics and the sort of racism, this progressive racism that we talked about in the last episode. U.S. quickly came to sort of dominate, po dominate politics in Latin America, South America, Central America, right? They We were the big force there. And by time... By the time World War I started, uh, the U.S. was becoming a world power. And so next week, we'll talk about that World War I. Uh, we'll do two podcasts on it. And once again, thanks for listening, and have a great day.